Good morning. Good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible under the row of chairs in front of you. If you can grab a Bible, we're going to be looking at Genesis 21 for our time together this morning. In Genesis 21, uh, we find a welcome relief from the last few chapters in Genesis where uh, we have encountered destruction and death and deception. Uh, These are some of the saddest chapters in the Bible. But we come now to the joyful celebration of the birth of Isaac. It's a birth that uh, we've been waiting for for many chapters. Uh, But it's also a birth that Abraham and Sarah had been waiting for for many years. We first met Abraham when he was 75 years old, back in Genesis 11 and 12. Now Abraham is 100 years old, and across that span of 25 years, uh, Abraham has been waiting for the son God promised him back in Genesis 12, verse 2, when the Lord said to him, I will make of you a great nation. And Abraham has been waiting, and we have been waiting for the resolution to the conflict that was introduced in Genesis 11, verse 30, where it was said that uh, Sarai was barren. She had no child. And over the course of these many years, we have seen several threats to God's promise of a son, uh, both from without and within. We've seen the, the threat of famine, the threat of violent kings, the threat of wickedness and Sodom and Gomorrah. But then we've also seen the threat to God's promise of a son on the part of Abraham and Sarah themselves, who in their foolishness and doubt seek to bring about God's promise in their own way. Yet all these threats would not derail God's promise. Why? Because God's promises do not fail. God's promises do not fail. As we wonder how it is that Abraham is going to be the father of many nations, how it is that Abraham's descendants are going to be more than the stars in the heavens and more than the sand on the seashore, we are reminded in this passage that once again, there is nothing too hard for the Lord. Now, how we're going to to do this is we're going to look at this chapter in three sections. You you may have a, a Bible translation uh, that separates the chapter by three headings. Uh, these, these headings are, are not inspired. Uh, they are simply there to help us see that, that we're dealing here with three different stories in this chapter. And what we're going to do is we're going to work through each one of these stories, and we're going to see how the birth of Isaac and how God's protection of Hagar and Ishmael and, and how uh, Abraham's treaty with Abimelech, how they all tie together. We're going to see how these seemingly disconnected stories point to the overarching promise that the Lord is the God of his people, that the Lord is their God and our God. So if you have your Bibles opened to Genesis chapter 21, follow along with me as I read for us the first Seven verses, verses one to seven. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, 
And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, what? No, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So the first thing we see is that God is true to his word. God is true to his word. Notice in these verses that the fulfillment of God's promise is repeated three times. Uh, It says that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and that the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and that Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son at the time of which God had spoken to him. Right? As God had said, as God had promised, as God had spoken. Three times, Moses stresses that God's promise, God's word was fulfilled in what he did on behalf of Abraham and Sarah, right? It's been 25 years since they left Ur of the Chaldeans, but God has not forgotten his promises. God has delivered on his promise that he made to Abraham all the way back then. And in the same way that the fulfillment of God's promise is repeated three times, so also the name Isaac is repeated three times. And this There is also a reason for this as well. In Genesis 17, God told Abraham that he would have a son by Sarah. And Abraham laughed, right? And then in Genesis 18, Sarah overheard God telling Abraham that this time next year, Sarah would have a son by Abraham. And she laughed, right? Abraham and Sarah, they're they're old. They, They can't imagine Sarah giving birth to a child, so they laugh. But God would have the last laugh, so to speak. God said to them that they would indeed have a child. And do you know what his name is? His name is Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter. We are meant to see here that God's promises may seem laughable. They may seem far-fetched to us, but... If God says he's going to do something, we can count on it. Laughter is mentioned over and over again so that we can be reminded of God's faithfulness. Certainly the child's name would be a daily reminder of their unbelief in the promise of God. But more importantly, it would be a daily reminder to them of the faithfulness of God, how God is true to his word. This is a story about God's impossible promises coming true because it it is impossible, right? Sarah was definitely past the age of childbearing. There's no human way that this could have happened. Abraham had tried to bring about God's promises in his own way. Remember, uh, first he asked God for for Eliezer of Damascus, who was uh, just some guy in in his household, uh, asked if he would be his heir, but God said to him that, This man, Eliezer, would not be the son of promise. 
Then he asked God for uh, his son Ishmael, whom he had by Hagar to be his heir. But again, God said that this son was not a son of promise. Instead, God has done the seemingly impossible by providing Abraham and Sarah with a son of their own in their old age. And notice Abraham's obedience. Notice Abraham's obedience. Just as Abraham was obedient to leave his country and his kindred and his father's house, right? Remember that back in in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, to go to the land that God would show him. So also Abraham is obedient to call the name of his son Isaac in accordance with the command of God back in Genesis 17, verse 19, you shall call his name Isaac. And he's also obedient to circumcise Isaac when he was eight days old in accordance with the command of God back in Genesis 17, verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. So we see Abraham's obedience to the command of God. Notice also that Abraham doesn't get a single word in this portion. We don't hear from him. Instead, we, this, this part of the, the passage concludes with a substantial song of praise by Sarah. In verse 6, she says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. God has turned the laughter of unbelief into the laughter of joy. Now Sarah knows that nothing is too hard for the Lord. Right? He who created the universe by the word of his power is able to fulfill his promise, no matter how impossible it seems. Now she understands. Those who waited in great expectation for the fulfillment of God's promise rejoiced when the time arrived. There was laughter in the air. Kind of like those who waited in great expectation for the Messiah rejoiced when Jesus arrived. In Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 47, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who experienced an even more miraculous birth than 90-year-old Sarah, she sings a song. She sings, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Yet this child was not named Isaac, was not named Laughter, but rather he was named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, Matthew 1, verse 21 says. Jesus brought joy by preaching the good news of the kingdom of God wherever he went, by healing people of their various diseases, and ultimately by giving his life as a ransom for many. You remember when the birth of Jesus was announced to the shepherds, the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And so what does this mean for us? Well, it means that we will face challenges in trusting the Lord. It means that we may struggle to trust God's goodness and faithfulness. But this passage about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, it's a reminder to us that God can be trusted. That the God who gave laughter to Sarah and a spirit of rejoicing to Mary and good news of great joy for all the people 
is the same God who keeps his promises today. The same God who is at work in each of us today. And for that, we can rejoice. We must rehearse God's promises to ourselves. We must meditate on them. We must remember his faithfulness to us and trust that what God has said he will do. This first story reminds us that God is true to his word. The second story we read about is God protecting Hagar and Ishmael. Look at verses 8 to 21. It says, And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. As she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. The second thing we see in our text is that God has mercy for his people and shows common grace to those who are not his people. God has mercy for his people and shows common grace toward those who are not his people. There's been some semblance of peace in the household of Abraham for the last number of years, since the, the first flight of Hagar and the, the birth of, of Ishmael. But as soon as the promised son was born, tensions were at an all-time high. Ishmael, who was a teenager by now, and who was supposed to be the heir of Abraham, had now been 
displaced by Isaac, the true heir. You can feel the resentment building in the story, right? A, a great feast is given for Isaac at the time of his weaning, which means that Isaac was probably around uh, three years old by this time. And at this particular feast, Sarah notices Ishmael doing something to Isaac that she doesn't like. Notice how Hagar is described in these verses. Uh, she is referred to as Hagar the Egyptian, indicating that Hagar was likely part of the gift that Pharaoh gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. On Genesis 16, Sarah referred to Hagar as a servant, but here she refers to her as a slave. Uh, notice also that Sarah makes a distinction between uh, Ishmael, who is Hagar's son, and Isaac, who is my son. In fact, Ishmael's name is not mentioned anywhere in this chapter. He is simply called the son, the boy, the child. Sarah doesn't use either of their names. She cold-heartedly says to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. There is definite conflict here. <laughs> but what was it that got Sarah so upset? Well, look at the word at the end of verse 9. It says that Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. Now, what exactly Ishmael did is not clear. Uh, in the English Standard Version, there's a footnote at the bottom of the page. You might have this as well. Uh, that says, possibly laughing in mockery. And I think that's a, the correct sense of the word. Uh, we, we've already seen laughter in the, the jubilation of Sarah over the birth of Isaac. Such laughter was the, the display of gratitude and astonishment at how God had kept his word to bring about the promised son. But the Hebrew word for laughing here is the same word used in Genesis chapter 19, verse 14, to describe Lot as he attempted to warn his family of the judgment to come. Right? You remember, it, it says that he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting, to be joking, to be laughing. It's the same word used in Genesis 26, verse 8, to describe Isaac's laughing with Rebekah, his wife. It was a kind of flirting that mocked Abimelech for having trusted them. It's the same word used in Genesis 39, verses 14 and 17, where uh, Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of coming in to laugh at her or to mock her. It's the same word used in Exodus 32, verse 6, when the people of Israel rose up to play, they rose up to laugh, to mock the Lord, the God of Israel. It appears in Judges 16, verse 25, where the Philistines brought out the blinded Samson in order that they might be entertained, in order that they might laugh and mock Samson. So I, I think the, the footnote is, is right. This is more than just child's play. This is more than just they're having a good time. They're, they're telling jokes. Now, whatever it was that Ishmael did to young Isaac may have seemed harmless but Sarah detects something more deceptive, more insidious under the surface. 
some sort of mockery has taken place. Uh, Ishmael has either not taken seriously the promised son or the God who promised him. This is more than just two moms sticking up for their kids. This is more than just a family squabble. There's a deeper spiritual significance to this story. In Psalm 83, the nations related to Israel have set themselves over against Israel. In Psalm 83, verse 4, the nations say, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. (laughs) And here are the nations. For they conspire with one accord against you they make a covenant, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites. All right, so we see here the descendants of Ishmael, they're in opposition to Israel, determined to bring about the end of the nation. The Apostle Paul, he picks up on this. And speaking of Ishmael and Isaac, in Galatians 4, verse 29, Paul writes, but just as at that time He who is born according to the flesh, that is Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that is Isaac. So also it is now. So so Paul understands what Ishmael did to be a kind of persecution, which Paul then applies to the Christians of the church in Galatia, who were burdened under the law of God, persecuted by those who would seek to live according to the flesh. So when Sarah says, cast out this slave woman with her son, there's an important spiritual reality taking place. There's a a distinction being made here between being physical and spiritual offspring. See, if if we are living like our good works will save us, if we are living according to the flesh... We're not children of God. We're not born according to the Spirit. Like Ishmael, we mock God and we mock those whom he has saved by his grace. We must confess that Jesus Christ alone is the means of our salvation. Otherwise, we too will be cast out, cast out from the presence of the Lord forever and ever. So there's a deeper spiritual significance happening here. Abraham, well, he's distressed by this matter because Ishmael was as much Abraham's son as as Isaac was. In fact, when God promised Abraham the, the, the birth of Isaac, Abraham said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. The thought of parting with Ishmael was too much for Abraham. Uh, I, I think about What's happened in the, with the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, the number of families who have been torn apart. There are children who will never see their parents again. There are parents who will never see their children again. And here, Abraham must send out a boy he loves into the wilderness, perhaps to die, never to see him again. And what does God say to Abraham? God says, I I know that what Sarah is saying is hard, but you you must do what she says. 
Right? Sarah is, is acting far from noble here. She's not exhibiting good character. But as we've seen, God takes what is meant for evil and uses it for good. God is, is saying to Abraham, this is all part of my plan to make of you a great nation. The promise must come through Isaac. But then God continues, but I will provide for your son and I will make him into a great nation as well. Now, God is, is not promising in this passage to be Ishmael's God, but, but twice in this chapter, God promises to make Ishmael into a great nation, both to comfort Abraham and also to comfort Hagar. Even though Ishmael is not the son of promise, God promises to look after Hagar and Ishmael. Abraham is comforted by this. The next morning, he sends them off with bread and water. And eventually they get to the point where they find themselves in a desperate situation. Hagar puts her son under one of the bushes and walks off a great distance, out of sight and out of ears. Why? Because they've run out of food and water and she's sure they're going to die. She doesn't want to look on the death of her son. But God would not let Hagar and Ishmael die in the wilderness. As they cry out, God, in his mercy, hears them. God hears us in our distress. We discover that God has not abandoned them. God desires to be the God of the outcast, the rejected, the abused, and the dying, which is exactly where Hagar and Ishmael find themselves. They have been outcast, they have been rejected, they've been abused, and they're on the verge of dying. But just like he would later do with the people of Israel, God has a plan to give them a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. This doesn't necessarily mean that Hagar and Ishmael had faith, but they necessarily believed in the one true God. But what is clear is that God's blessing, God's common grace was upon them. Just as God opened Sarah's womb, so here God opens Hagar's eyes to see a well of water. And they continue to live in the wilderness where Ishmael becomes an expert with the bow and being from Egypt, Hagar takes a wife for Ishmael from the land of Egypt. And, and throughout all of this, we see God providing for them just as he promised Abraham. You see, God promised Abraham that Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. And what's happening here is that those who belong to Abraham, even if just physically and not spiritually, those who belong to Abraham physically, even they receive blessing. I'll make you a blessing to the nations and they receive God's blessing. But there's an important principle here for us. Sometimes God draws away that which might separate us from him or compromise our trust in him. Sometimes God draws our hearts away from that which we might think we love most. We see this with Hagar and, and Ishmael being separated from, from Abraham and Isaac. They, they were yet another threat to the promise of God. And the same is true for us. Or maybe there's some hope, some dream, some 
some prayer that the Lord in his providence hasn't provided for us. And like Eve, we are tempted to think that God is withholding good from us, but it might be the mercy of God to not give us what we want. It might be that the breaking of our hearts is producing in us greater faith. It might be that this light momentary affliction is producing in us and for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, right? We, we don't have the mind of God, but we, we can know that God is right in what he has ordained. And so we see in the second story how God in his mercy has mercy for his people and how he shows common grace toward those who are not his people. Completely undeserving on all accounts, but it's God and his goodness and faithfulness. Lastly, we, we see Abraham's treaty with Abimelech. Look at verses 22 to 34. It says, At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God, that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I've dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven hue lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven hue lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. And so this last thing we see in our text is that God's grace is evident in the lives of his people. God's grace is evident in the lives of his people. Uh, we, we first met Abimelech last week when uh, Abraham lied to him uh, about Sarah being his, his, uh, his sister, uh, which I, th I think is why Abimelech says, you know, swear, <laughs> swear to me that you will not deal falsely with me you know, as you have already done. Uh, but here Abimelech, he's trying to strike a bargain with Abraham. He, he comes with his military might and he reminds Abraham that he's just a sojourner in the land, in his land, no doubt, uh, in hopes that Abraham will deal kindly with him just as he has seen how Abraham's God has dealt kindly with Abraham. Uh, Abimelech doesn't necessarily believe in the one true God, but he does acknowledge that Abraham has prospered 
under the mighty hand of the Lord, which is a point that we would do well to consider. Do our lives look like that of Abraham to the world around us? Can can others see the grace of God in our lives? Can others see that uh, we have prospered? Maybe not, not necessarily physically, but even spiritually. Do we have, that we can respond to situations of anxiety with the peace of God, which transcends all human understanding, that kind of thing. Do others see that in us? Can they see God's grace in our lives? Before this covenant is made, however, Abraham brings a concern to Abimelech. He, He says, your men have stolen a well that I dug. And now here in the, the desert, water is life. Right? Some of you have, have maybe been to this area in, in Israel. You, you can understand that water is a, water's a pretty big deal. And stealing, stealing somebody's well of water would be a pretty big deal. Abimelech here, he responds apologetically, though he doesn't necessarily need to. He says, this is the first I've heard of this. And Abimelech, he believes Abraham. And what follows is the ritual covenant ceremony. And just like what we saw back in Genesis chapter 15, where animals are killed and and they're cut in two and placed side by side for the participants in the covenant to walk between. Uh, Essentially saying, you know, may what has been done to these animals be done to me if I don't fulfill my end of this covenant. But where the covenant in Genesis 15 was entered into by God alone, here both parties enter into covenant with each other. The result of this covenant is that uh, Abimelech acknowledges the well to belong to Abraham by receiving the, the seven lambs of, that Abraham provides, you know, which begs the question. But you know, back in Genesis chapter 15, what was it that God gave to Abraham as confirmation of the covenant he made with him? And the answer is he gave himself. He gave himself. God Himself, remember he passed through the pieces of the animals in the smoking fire pot and flaming torch, swearing by himself that he would be faithful to keep his promises. And the same is true for us. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, the Apostle Paul says that God has given us a deposit on his promise to save his people. Paul writes, Uh, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that is Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what has God given us? He has given us himself. He's given us himself. God confirmed the covenant he made with us by giving us his Holy Spirit. This is our security, right? When when we are persecuted or when we are driven to despair or or when we are uh, tempted to, to leave the God we love, our assurance is in God who by himself has sworn to keep us to the end, who by his word, who keeps his word, has promised to keep us to the end. Now, what is Abraham's response to God in all of this? 
Verse 33 says that he planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And so just as uh, Abraham built altars to the Lord in the land that God had promised him, back in Genesis chapter 12 here, Abraham is planting a tree in the promised land as a way of declaring that this land belongs to the Lord. And this is what I believe connects these three seemingly disconnected stories. You see, God promised Abraham initially two things, a child and land. And in the first story, we see the birth of Isaac. So here's the promise of the child. And before we think that the birth of this promised son means that Abraham can now sit back, relax, and enjoy the good life, the second story reminds us that there's still dynamics in this family that need to be worked out, that need to be dealt with. Isaac is, is a blessing from God, but everything hasn't worked out perfectly all of a sudden. Even after Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away, he realizes that he's still a sojourner in the land that God had promised to give to him. In fact, Abimelech reminds him of this fact in the third story when Abimelech talks about Abraham sojourning in the land. So, so what does Abraham do? He's, he's got the promise of the child. So what does he do about the promise of land? He plants a tree. He plants a tree. He plants something that will take a long time to grow. Why? Because Abraham is looking long-term, not short-term. Abraham's looking long-term, not short-term. Even if Abraham doesn't get to see it, his son will. And his descendants will see it. See, Abraham believes that God will be with him and his family For a long time. How does he know this? Because the Lord is the everlasting God. It's the beginning and the end. It's before all things and after all things. Do we have the same assurance as Abraham? I think we too often want long-term results in the short term. And we want long-term results in the short term. You know, maybe we want to get married. Maybe we want to have children or, or grandchildren. Maybe we want a new job. Maybe we want better finances or better health. Maybe we want revival. You know, maybe we want the gospel to, to break through in a, in a country that is being hardened to the person and work of Jesus Christ for so long. Maybe we want the gospel to break into our unbelieving family, and friends. Maybe we want the restoration of all things that is coming when Christ returns, and maybe we want it now. But 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, sorry, is clear that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. That's because God is in the long-term business. Abraham recognized this. He, he recognized that he hadn't received everything that God had promised to him, and he might never receive it. 
At the end of uh, Hebrews chapter 11, we read that, that all the individuals in the quote-unquote hall of faith were commended for their faith, though they did not receive what was promised. Since God had promised something better for us. So even though Abraham doesn't receive everything God had promised to him, he plants a tree because he believes that this everlasting God knows what he's doing and he's willing to stake his life on him. How much more should we, who are on this side of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, who have received what Abraham could have only dreamed of, how much more should we respond in this way? You see, years later, another son of promise would be born. It wasn't Isaac, it was Jesus. And we know that Jesus is coming again. And as such, we live as children of the promise. Now, it doesn't mean that the problems go away. I'm not perfect. My family's not perfect. This church is not perfect. And this country is far from perfect. So what do we do? How do we live as pilgrims in this fallen world? We look to Abraham and we plant a tree. Not literally, but figuratively speaking. We plant a tree. We trust in the God who gave Isaac, who sent Jesus, and who is coming again. We play the long-term game, waiting for God to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. We stake our lives on the Lord Jesus, knowing that there is nothing in this life or the next more certain. And we take comfort in the promise that the Lord is our God. In fact, that's a great question to end with. Is the Lord, the God of the Bible, is he our God? I pray that he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for your many blessings. Pray that you would give us grace to believe, repent, and trust as we fix our eyes on the true and better promised Son, the Lord Jesus, and his death on the cross and subsequent resurrection from the dead. We are mindful of all the ways we have fallen short. We have doubted. Uh, We have tried to fulfill your promises on on our own terms. We have disobeyed your commandments. And so we confess. We confess our sins before you, knowing that those who hunger and thirst after you, Jesus said, I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we, we give you thanks, God, for your inexpressible gift, and we commit our lives to you 
and to your service, knowing that you will do what is right, knowing that you will keep your word, and that you will keep us to the end. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.